Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. It's Friday, June 20th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Swell, or on any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they have a great offer for Inquiring Minds listeners, a free audiobook. Yes, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So, Indre, you know when you pick up a book and it turns out that it is way more profound than you thought it would be? I mean, it's a rare occurrence, but uh, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, but usually it's for novels like, you know, George <laughs> R. R. Martin, for example, yeah, um, yeah. or Donna fin- uh, Finch's, sorry, Donna yeah. Tartt's The Goldfinch uh, recently. But right now I'm actually reading a Stephen King novel about a guy who travels back in time to prevent JFK's assassination. And it's blowing my mind. In wow, all seriousness, it's this cool premise that does away with the need to invent a time travel device. And huh. instead, the protagonist stumbles upon a wormhole. So how's that for a tangent? Wow. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I have a nonfiction equivalent because that's what happened with the book that's at the center of this week's show. The book is called How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. It's by Jordan Ellenberg. He is a math professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a novelist, so that's an interesting blend. He's also the author of the occasional Do the Math column at Slate, so people might have read him there. Uh, And this book, actually, really, wow. Um, I went into it thinking, you know, this will probably help me understand some math a little better because, boy, do we talk about math and statistics kind of stuff on the show. Uh, It turned out it was more than that. Uh, And you'll have to listen to the... People have to listen to the whole interview to see what the book is about. But basically... Ellenberg is making the case that math itself is thinking. And in particular, it's a certain kind of thinking that is nuanced, that is tolerant of complexity and respects uncertainty, and that it's therefore the kind of thinking we need to not be wrong about the world. Uh, so this, and, and he makes a great case for it. So I want to just play you a clip from one of the best parts of my interview with Jordan Ellenberg, where he's using, of all things, he's using the analogy of trying to read sheep entrails to predict the future, uh, but he's using that analogy to show why some of the statistical tests we use, uh, widely in social science and other fields, can really mislead us. 
And for stats nerds, he's talking about this convention, uh, which you will know, which is that having a p-value of 0.05 or less means your results are statistically significant. Ellenberg says, well, uh, don't be so sure you've actually found something. Here's the clip. If you read sheep entrails a lot and test 100, 1,000, 10,000 different things to see if the predictions of the sheep entrails matches what actually happens, some of the time you're going to get a positive result. And what this p-value of 0.05 means is it says in a case where there is no effect, like the sheep entrails, one in 20 times, you're going to pass the test. And nowadays, you know, we have the ability to do so many more trials, to study so many more associations so quickly and so effortlessly with the tools we have for studying data, that in some sense, you can do a large study and you can test 10,000 different things just at the touch of a keystroke, right? So, if you test 10,000 things and just by chance, one in 20 of them is going to pass the test, you're going to have a lot of spurious results that give the appearance of being meaningful, but are really not. And that's kind of the challenge that we face. And of course, Indre, this goes back to a topic we've discussed before, which is the crisis of replication in social science. And this sheep entrails p-value thing might be a part of that. Yeah, exactly. This is something that scientists struggle with a lot. I mean, my favorite kinds of experiments are the ones that generate a lot of data. And any way you look at it, you can find something interesting. But there's a problem with that, of course, because any way you look at it, you can find something interesting. <laughs> so, you know, how do you tell what's really true? You have to be careful. You have to c- correct for multiple comparisons. And there are statistics that have been invented for that. Um, but, you know, it is something that we really need to think about. And oftentimes, as consumers of science, we don't go into the method and to figure out whether they did these correct um, comparisons and, and corrections. Well, this book is really, really hard on this topic, and it spends a huge amount of time explaining why a lot of things that we hear about might not actually be good results because of the problem. So it's another reason that people should read it if they want to uh, be involved in rooting out nonsense. Cool. So that's our interview for today. But um, first, let's talk about some signs in the news. And there's one story in particular that's been on my mind. Um, this is a study that came out of UCSD with senior author Robert Navio in the journal Translational Psychiatry. And it points towards a potential cure for autism using a drug that's been around for 100 years. So let me first unpack the mechanisms for you. First of all, neurons, like all cells, depend on the environment in which they live, right? So that's why the distinction between nurture and nature, genes and environment is so spurious. Genes actually need parts of the environment in order to do what they need to do. So if you look at the chemicals surrounding a cell, you can get a sense of how healthy that cell is and what it's actually doing. That is, if certain metabolites or byproducts of chemical reactions are there, we can tell if the cell is happy or stressed. Now, cells that are stressed from things like microbes, like viruses or bacteria, or physical trauma, say like a blow to the head, or from exposure to nauseous chemicals, like from pesticides or other pollutants, they initiate a defensive response. And one thing they do is they pull up the drawbridge and fortify the cell wall, if you'll forgive a Game of Thrones kind of uh, oh, analogy. Oh, appropriate. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so their cell membrane becomes more stiff, right? And they do this to protect the interior of the cell from unwanted guests. But this process also affects the communication between cells, and this is particularly problematic in the brain, which depends depends on these cells exchanging chemicals to communicate with each other. So if the drawbridges are up, the cells can't send or receive these signals and neurons... The ravens, they would be ravens, they'd be sending ravens. That's right, right. No ravens, no (laughs) ravens, right? So you don't know what's happening. So if this happens during one of the critical periods of neurodevelopment in childhood, 
Well, you can imagine just how damaging this would be for complex behaviors like those involved in social interactions, theory of mind, etc. So that's one idea of how autism might develop. That's the bad news. The good news is that Robert Navio and his colleagues at UCSD have a mouse model of autism, and they've been studying the effects of certain drugs on these mice. And in this paper, they report that one drug called suramin, it's a well-known inhibitor of the cell's sort of danger response or the stiffening of the membrane, has shown some efficacy. So we've known about this drug for 100 years. It's used to treat African sleeping sickness, a parasitic disease. Um, but essentially, when put into these mice, the cells began to behave normally, and the autism-like behaviors um, began to be corrected. So that's really cool. There's a massive caveat. For one, it's mice. Another one, the behavioral and biological benefits are not permanent. They only lasted about five weeks. And in humans, we can't take it long term because it can result in anemia and other dysfunction. So we're not there yet, but at least the hint of a mechanism by which autism symptoms might be reversed is really exciting. It's cool to hear about this. What does it say about what's causing autism then? Something that what's makes what makes the cells in the brain go into defense mode and, you know, pull up the drawbridge, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think we're not really sure. But now we can start to think about how potential things in the environment, you know, that might have increased in prevalence in the last few years as autism has also increased, might, you know, interact with the genes in order to, to create this particular problem. So, you know, we don't know exactly what pollutants or toxins or other things trigger autism. Um, but I think it's exciting. We just to know think, what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, that we know. Um, but in any case, you know, I think that that's, that's something that, that, that really points to not only understanding more about the mechanism, but also potentially reversing the symptoms, which, you know, for, for parents all over is just really exciting. Great. Well, listen, um, that was a really interesting uh, study to unpack. And for the next part of the show, before we get to our longer interview, I actually am going to bring on a discussant uh, for this, this part of the show. And so I want to welcome Tasneem Raja who's the interactive editor at Mother Jones Magazine and the author of a really important feature story in the latest issue of the magazine, which is right up our alley. It's entitled, We Can Code It, Why Computer Literacy is Key to Winning the 21st Century. So, Tasneem, welcome on the show. Hi, thanks, guys. So, uh, in this new article, and it is a very great article, and um, you know, I think a lot of people are reading and discussing it now, you make the case for the importance of what you call code literacy. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because there's been so much discussion in the last few years about the idea that, you know, everybody should learn to code. Should everybody learn to code? But there's not a lot of agreement on what that means. And in my piece, I wanted to kind of unpack that. So I started by drawing an analogy to something that people are more familiar with, which is cooking. If you think about it, what do you do when you're cooking? You're taking a bunch of random ingredients and then you're transforming them by putting them together in different ways and applying different processes to them. And then you're going to end up with something that looks really different from what you started, but is something you are going to find useful in some way. That's actually exactly what software algorithms are. And the really neat thing about this stuff is that it's actually more important to understand what code can do, what that sort of end result might look like based on ingredients you might have on hand, like some data in a database, you know, based on a survey you did at work about how happy employees are in different departments, um, matched with, you know, the number of projects everybody did last year, like simple stuff, right? Just taking object A and object B, and then knowing 
that they can be put together and have something interesting come out of that is actually more important to code literacy than being able to do the coding yourself. Well, you haven't seen my cooking, so I'm actually now <laughs> terrified of whether I'm going to be able to code. Um, you also say the U.S. is behind in this kind of literacy vis-a-vis other countries. Is this sort of parallel to our sort of declining scientific ambitions um, in the country? Well, a lot of it, I think, is um, there are definitely parallels to what we've seen going on in other STEM fields in terms of, you know, we're, we're falling behind here. Um but there are some specific problems with computer science. A big part of it is the way that we teach it and the way that we introduce it in schools. So we do it with this code heavy approach where, for instance, um, one of the most popular or one of the most widely available classes is AP computer science. And the problem with this class is it just jumps right into syntax and semicolons and loops and all of this stuff before you've really talked to students about why they might want to learn this stuff or what they could actually do with it in their own lives. So when you teach it that way, you're attracting the kids who are already going to be more inclined to get into to coding on their own anyway, right? And it's no secret that these are mostly white and Asian boys. For cultural reasons, you know, they're more drawn to programming on their own time. But if we want to get lots of different kinds of kids into programming, it's really interesting that some research is showing if you change up the way you teach it, if you start by saying, hey, here's what code literacy is. Here's how you could do something with this. Here are some cool projects you could do. And by the way, you don't have to become a coder if you learn code. You might become an artist, a doctor, a, um, you know, an architect. And you're going to be able to use coding to become a better architect, a better doctor. The research shows that when you introduce code that way, it actually increases the number of girls and kids of color who sign up for these classes and stick with them. You know, so this actually reminds me of a movement in the musical training world, too, where you have sometimes the same problem, right? You're trying to teach a kid how to play music, and you start with trying to teach them music theory, and, you know, their eyes glaze over, and only a small, small percentage of people stick stick with it. But there's a, a new program called Little Kids Rock that is going into all kinds of schools, particularly ones that are underrepresented in music. And they start out with a very first lesson, the kids learn to play a song in a rock band. So they, they start right from the outset, composing their own music and getting, you know, seeing a final product within the first hour. And it's way more successful in getting kids interested in music. So, you know, I think that in some ways, this is exactly what you're talking about is like, if we can get kids right from their first lesson to see what the, the product is of their knowledge, you know, that can really keep them engaged. Yeah, this curriculum that I took a close look at that's called Exploring Computer Science is being developed by researchers at UCLA. And it's a year-long class in which, and this is really interesting, kids don't actually touch a computer for the first couple semesters. They're doing logic games. They're doing sort of, you know, solving puzzles. And you get them thinking less in terms of code and more in terms of what, what I'm calling computational thinking, which is looking at the world in terms of problems that can be solved by breaking them down into smaller parts and then solving them one at a time till you get to your end result. And when you teach it that way, it actually seems more like, you know, solving a mystery or being a detective than being a coder. And a lot of kids respond really well to that. I bet they start to score much higher on their analogical components of the SATs. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that's true. This is also parallel to math. I mean, you know, our our next interview is about 
someone trying to explain that math is not just, you know, the hard calculations that you have to do in algebra or calculus, that it's actually conceptual and it can be used for all kinds of, kinds of things. And that's kind of exactly what you're saying. Um, people turn off on math for the same reasons, I think. Yeah, you know, there was a, a study that I came across while I was researching my story. And it's a great example of how, you know, coding is not just for coders. So a couple of researchers um, in an English department decided to take Agatha Christie's entire, um, not discography, I don't know what it's called when it's a writer, you know, all of the works of Agatha Christie. And her they, oeuvre. Yeah, her oeuvre, exactly. And they <laughs> fed it into uh, natural, natural language processing software. And then they analyzed the results and saw that Agatha Christie's vocabulary changed dramatically over the course of her writing career. So earlier in her career, if you look at her novels, her vocabulary contains a lot more unique words. That is, she's using a lot more different words and using just a lot more words in general than she does later in her career. So they're looking at this and they went and talked to some brain researchers and the theory that they have put forward, which, you know, has, is a theory that nobody's ever really even considered before is that Agatha Christie developed Alzheimer's later in her career. And if you look at some other authors who had a career, um, if you look at the works of other authors that were writing for about as long as Agatha Christie was, you don't see the same drop off in unique, um, you don't see the same shrinking of vocabulary. So, you know, these are a couple of English PhDs, and they're using algorithms to make new theories about literature. I mean, I think a lot of kids would be really interested to hear about that. I would, as an English major who got tired of the old ways of analysis. They seem to wear out pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, on that note, uh, Tasneem, thank you for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Really fascinating um, topic. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. This was fun. People should check out the article at motherjones.com. You can probably find it uh, fast by searching for We Can Code It, Mother Jones, Why Computer Literacy is Key to Winning the 21st Century. Okay, so let's take a short break, and then we'll be back with my interview with Jordan Ellenberg. Once again, I wanted to remind you that today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to the classics. Basically, what Audible does is it lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And that's not all. Audible is offering you a free audiobook. You just have to go to this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And I can make some book recommendations if you're interested. They have my last book, The Republican Brain. They have Indre's new series of lectures, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, and they have the book that we are talking about on the show this week, Jordan Ellenberg's How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. So go on over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and get one of these free books. Jordan Ellenberg, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me on. Well, I really loved your book. I'm thrilled to have you on. I especially loved your celebration of a very politically and historically significant mathematician, the Marquis de Condorcet, who I actually did a whole chapter on in my last book, uh, The Republican Brain, it was called. It was all about how brilliant and also tragic Condorcet was. So we have, um, I don't know if you knew, we have this sort of shared love for the guy. And he was a guy who I actually 
to be honest, I knew very little about before I started writing this book. I mean, one of the things that was so fun for me as a mathematician writing it was going deeper into the history of some of the ideas that we take for granted and think of standard. But of course, no standard idea was always standard, right? There's a moment at which it appears and blossoms. So, yeah, I want to ask you more about Condorcet and all the crazy math thinking going on in the French Revolution. But first, I think just to get our, our listeners uh, into the conversation, I want to um, sort of explain where you're coming from a little bit. Um, the ways you make math so incredibly relevant to us. Uh, and to do that, I mean, I think that this is a little counterintuitive to people um, because you say math is is a way not to be wrong about things in the world, and it's an extension of your common sense. But people don't usually think about it that way. They, they see abstract calculations somehow detached from reality as being characteristic of math, and they even see mathematicians stereotypically as being kind of absent-minded geniuses who might lack common sense. So tell us, tell us why that's wrong, and tell us how you're coming at this. Well, that's right. And I think um, it's very forgivable because the way math is usually taught, um, it's taught very algorithmically, right? There's like a sequence of symbolic manipulations that you're supposed to do in order to get a good score on the test. And it's presented as something that is completely separate from ordinary thinking. You might even say it's presented as something we do instead of thinking. Um, but, you know, we didn't just make up algebra or make up calculus like just to have something to test kids on, right? Every single mathematical technique we have um, comes from problems, comes from taking our intuition, our ordinary way of thinking about problems and trying to really distill that, to boil it down to its essence. And often the essence of a thought, I mean, it is something abstract. It would be wrong to say that math is not abstract, but it's an abstraction of something, namely of our usual thinking. So, in high school, uh, I don't know how, how many times you get this story. I was very good at math, but hated it. Um, I memorized what I needed to get an A, uh, but I thought it was a kind of a game. And I never got any sense that there was anything profound or meaningful about it other than the, other than the memorization, which I knew how to conquer. Um, so does this mean that uh, my teachers were not to, you know, helping to inspire me? Or does this mean maybe that it's just hard to really get a sense of these uh, real ramifications until you're at a very high level of math. Well, I, I I don't think it has to be hard. I mean, and part of my aim in writing this book was to try to find a way um, to get to that point, to get to that point of seeing the connections between the mathematics and everyday life that did not require, you know, going to college and majoring in math and getting a PhD, which is what I did. You know, I mean, this is sort of stuff I've come to really see over the course of a long time, both studying mathematics in its most abstract form and also writing about mathematical topics, doing journalism for newspapers and magazines. That's what really sort of brought home to me just how much there was to say from a mathematical point of view about the world. Um, I don't blame your teachers. I don't think they were bad teachers. <laughs> Okay, well, so let's turn to some details about how, you know, you can apply mathematical thinking, because your book is full of all of these amazing case studies. Use mathematical thinking to prevent us from erring. And you certainly need statistics and math to unravel all kinds of issues in medicine uh, and health. So let's start first with one, one that you talk about. Um, there, apparently, this was study was actually published. Somebody claimed that all Americans would be obese by 2048, and you shoot that down. So tell us a little bit about why, how does that get in a journal if it's so wrong? Well, this is an example of um, a technique that's called linear regression. And I don't mean to, you know, attack that technique because it's phenomenally useful. I mean, it's a way of taking some kind of crazy data set and trying to approximate it by a linear trend. 
Um, and lots of the world is kind of linear, right? That's not a bad thing to do. But in this case, uh, it led the authors to a result which is on its face kind of nonsensical, right? The proportion of people who are overweight or obese would in the year 2048 hit 100%. And then if you take the linear trend seriously, then it would go above 100%. It'd be 110%, 120%, right? That should show you that there's sort of something slightly wrong with your model. But, you know, I mean, you ask how could something like this get published? And I, I actually don't even feel like the, the results of this study were perfectly good, right? These guys were doing good work. But what they should have done, they should have reported, here's what the linear trend is, but then sort of made it more clear. But we're not, this is just the result of applying this linear approximation. Obviously, it ceases to work in a certain range, right? It ceases to work when you get close to 100%. But we we tend to, I guess, in our heads even, without doing calculations, we think linearly all the time. I mean, that's another one of your points, is just we sort of do it automatically. Right, we do. And again, it's not bad that we do, right? Because linear phenomena are so common, right? If you sort of throw something, it tends to move in a straight line in the direction that you threw it. So, it's natural that that's our first approximation to all kinds of things we see in the world. We see a trend, unless we have a reason in our mind to think otherwise, we expect it to continue in roughly the same direction in the same rate. So, also in, in medical you know, journalism, description of medical uh, studies and the statistics on which they're based, I mean, you talk a lot about, you know, we, we hear a risk ratio, it makes us sound really scared. Actually, the number of people affected is very tiny. Um, you know, you, you talk about even scientists, you know, they report p-values for, quote, statistical significance. And yet, in fact, there's a lot of ways in which that might not be telling you nearly as much as you think it is. Tell us a little bit more about those kind of problems. Yeah, and this is a huge challenge. And the problems involved are really hard, by the way. So, I don't think this is an issue of people intentionally trying to mislead or people being foolish. It's a problem of it's quite difficult to infer what is really going on, let's say, in a medical intervention. Um from the trials we can do. And this case of p-values is one that has gotten a lot of press because it really is, I, I don't think it overstates it to say that it's kind of a crisis in medical science and social science, that people are truly feeling unsure about how well the standard techniques for saying, does this drug work or does it not work? Does this psychological intervention work or does it not work? We have a standard toolbox for making those judgments that we've had for 70 years and the cracks are starting to show. Um, and that's something people are very worried about. Mm -hmm. So, tell us a little, a little bit more about what that means. I mean, the p-value is is basically saying, you know, this we think this result is statistically significant. We think it's not, and I and I always get this wrong, right? So you're going to probably have to correct me. We think it's not just chance. Um, we think that actually we're detecting something because it's it's a point zero five level of significance. So tell us about that. Right. And what that, what that means taken literally, it's, it's quite a subtle thing to get your head around. But what it means is that if you were studying an intervention where there was no effect. So the example I use in the book is horospicy, which is telling the future via sheep entrails. Um, I borrowed it from the statistician Cosmo Elysium. And just to give an example of something that I think we kind of agree actually doesn't work. Um, but of course, if you read sheep entrails a lot and test a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand different things to see if the predictions of the sheep entrails matches what actually happens. Some of the time you're going to get a positive result. And what this p-value of 0.05 means is it says in a case where there is no effect, like the sheep entrails, one in 20 times, you're going to pass the test. And nowadays, you know, we have the ability 
to do so many more trials, to study so many more associations so quickly and so effortlessly with the tools we have for studying data that in some sense you can do a large study and you can test 10,000 different things just at the touch of a keystroke, right? So, if you test 10,000 things and just by chance, one in 20 of them is going to pass the test, you're going to have a lot of spurious results that give the appearance of being meaningful, but are really not. And that's kind of the challenge that we face. So, should we shift it so you're looking for one in 100 or even, you know, one in 1,000? I mean, what, what does one do? It's probably different in different fields. It is different in different fields. And there are areas, you know, the physicists will constantly talk about p-values of like one in a million or one in a billion or something like that. But the truth is, and this is what R.A. Fisher said, who kind of invents this whole field and develops the test of significance. He sort of insists that there's not some fixed level of significance that's the right threshold. It's just a convention. It's sort of funny that he insisted on that. And yet, that is, in effect, what we have, this p equals 0.05 level that everyone has agreed to use. So, what he said something very interesting, which is that you simply have to adjust how you make these decisions based on what you know and your beliefs. So, for instance, if you see two studies which give you the exact same numerical data about the effectiveness of some intervention, but one of them is about a cancer drug that sort of is in the same family as other drugs, and the other one is about, you know, waving a swatch of branches over the patient, um, I, I think it's totally okay to end up with different opinions about whether the intervention works, even though in some sense, the evidence you get is numerically exactly the same, um, you're allowed to take into account what you think is crazy and what you think is reasonable. And walking down that road kind of takes you to what's called a Bayesian thinking about statistics. Well, you can tell us more about that. But you mentioned Fisher, and he plays a big role in your book. He's sort of, uh, you call him sort of a, a major father of statistical thinking. But he also actually argued, you devote attention to this, um, that, you know, maybe it's not that smoking causes lung cancer, it's that lung cancer causes smoking. <laughs> right? Tell us, about, I mean, this is sort of, this one blew my mind. I never knew anybody argued that. But apparently, he thought he had a pretty good case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. And again, it forces you to go back in time to a time when it really was not obvious that smoking caused lung cancer, right? It became more and more obvious over the years. And now we think, well, how could they not know? But, um, you know, in the 50s or 60s, there really was no direct connection. They couldn't show that nicotine and other chemicals and, and tobacco tar created tumors in animals. It was this purely correlational association. Um, and Fisher, despite the fact that he was dead wrong about this. I think he was actually doing what a good statistician does, which is say, have we considered all the possible hypotheses before we make a decision? So, he was like, well, for all we know, maybe cancer is the result of some kind of inflammatory, unpleasant condition that you have your whole life that makes you sort of slightly less healthy and maybe people who sort of feel bad all the time are more likely to go for a nice relaxing cigarette in order to calm themselves down. Right. Um, now, he was a smoker all his life. So, of course, there's some amount of bias there. Um, but I think even though he ended up being wrong, in a weird way, I think I come down on the side of admiring him for methodically being like, let's write down all the possible hypotheses and argue about them. So, I guess, you know, using these examples, I mean, a lot of things in the book are about statistics. I, I guess I feel sometimes, are you teaching us math or are you teaching us wisdom about math? In other words, how to know when something that sounds mathematical is actually misleading you? I mean, it seems like there's maybe a difference there. See, the fact that you asked this question is exactly how you were damaged by your schooling. Okay. <laughs> if that's okay for me to say. I'm glad we diagnosed it. Good. Um, okay. Because... 
to say, okay, there's math and then there's thinking about math, like asking, have we considered all the hypotheses? Is this argument justified? Blah, blah, blah. No, that stuff, that is the math. The symbolic manipulation and multiplying numbers together and doing algebra and computing the derivative of the function, that is to math as typing is to writing, right? You need to be able to do it. It's part of math. But exactly what I want to fight is the idea that actually thinking is sort of something that takes place separate from the mathematics. It is the mathematics. Well, and I, and that's what the book eff- effectively makes that case. It's it's not my schooling only. It's actually a whole culture of thinking uh, that delimited what we think math is and and made it in, you know live in this little space rather than having more expansive tentacles into other places. I think that that's it's just it's it's much bigger than any one um, classroom or teacher or anything like that. Well, your teachers then, just like teachers now, are under tremendous pressure to get you to pass a standardized test or other kinds of assessment instrument, right? So, in a way, they don't have that much choice about what they teach you. It puts a tremendous pressure on the people who are writing the tests to try to write tests that somehow gauge actual mathematical thinking. I mean, I know people work very hard on that. It's not an easy task. So, uh, there's a lot of political examples uh, in the, well, I mean, political, you know, at least they they bear on some of the present day debates we're having. So, I wanted to go through some of those. Again, back back to the topic of linear thinking, you, you, you take on the sort of healthcare issue and you've got a, someone from the Cato Institute, I think, saying that, you know, the United States is moving towards Sweden uh, because it's adopting Obamacare. And then the person's pointing out Sweden doesn't even like Sweden. <laughs> Sweden's moving back towards the United States. Um, but you say this is linear. I mean, this is actually not understanding the dynamics of the issue. Right. I mean, when you ask a rhetorical question like that, right, when you say he sort of titles his blog post, this guy, I'm sort of... Uh, tweaking in this section. He titles it, Why is America trying to become more like Sweden when Sweden is trying to become less like Sweden? As if there's something incongruous about that. And that, and so, what I try to do is drill down and say, why would he think that's weird? And the reason is, I think, is because implicitly you have some kind of linear model where the relationship between how Swedish you are, meaning like how much you tax your citizens, how much your government spends, some kind of linear model where that either taxing more either increases prosperity or decreases prosperity, period, no matter where you are. But if you take one second to think about that consciously, that's obviously not true, right? There's such a thing as taxing too little and there's such a thing as taxing too much. And there's kind of a Goldilocks point where it's just right, somewhere in between. Um, And so, there's no contradiction to say that maybe the US should have more of a welfare state than it does and maybe Sweden should have less of a welfare state than it it was. Um, And I think one thing that I think the mathematical approach can bring to bear is to kind of not allow you to or help you not just lean on these heuristics to like read that headline and be like, huh, that is weird. You should sort of stop and be like, let me consciously think about whether that rhetorical question actually is a perfectly reasonable answer. And I want to do one more thing in economics. You talk a lot about the Laffer curve, um, which is which is defined a whole, you know, generation of Republican Party thought about economics. Um, and it, it, it gets translated and simplified into the idea that if you decrease taxes, then, you know, the economy does better and you get more revenue from the government. Um, so tell us a little bit more about, about the math of that one. Well, actually, let me push back on that a little bit because this is important because what the Laffer curve says, it doesn't say that if you decrease taxes, the government gets more revenue. It says that there is some tax rate where that's true. Right, it's somewhere says, on the curve that somewhere happens, on yes. the curve that happens. So, one, I found myself in the rather strange position of defending the Laffer curve, which people think of as like 
a thing from the 80s like parachute pants that was popular once and has now been discredited. Um, but probably a better way to think of it is that the Laffer curve, no one really disagrees with it. The only question is where we are on that curve. I think that's what Reagan and the people around him are now universally understood to have been wrong about. So, what, what does that mean? I mean, the, in other words, we weren't on a, pl- on a part of the curve where, um, where taxing more would lead to less economic growth. Exactly. And I think, indeed, uh, well, okay, to be, to, it's really a question of whether taxing more leads to less government revenue. And I think everyone agrees now that the massive tax cuts of the 80s, um, you can argue about whether they were good or bad, but certainly they did lead to decreased government revenue, contrary to what Laffer had predicted. So I guess uh, one, you know, and this this come brings us back to Condorcet a little bit, but there's something about, I guess I would argue, there's something about applying this approach to topics that has, and I'm not accusing you of anything, but it has, it's just, it's, I think it's naturally occurring. I think it has a little bit of a liberal political psychology to it, um, and I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, I looked at some um, some studies, and these are studies done by conservatives of the politics of the professoriate. And um, they find that, you know, variously, 69% of college math, math press professors are liberal or 72% in a different study. And so just, for, just to give you some context, that makes them less liberal than English professors or sociologists, but more liberal than ec- economists or business uh, professors. Uh, so, you know, the reason I say this is because what you're, what you're saying is, you know, we need to be more nuanced and we need to be more able to process uncertainty. Uh, in how we think about complex topics involving numbers. Uh, and that's sort of the, the whole psychology of left versus right right there is the sort of, is sort of appreciation of nuance. That's what all the, the psychology studies say. And, and it's interesting because actually I think there is a stereotype that mathematicians are exactly the opposite of people who care about nuance, right? I think most people would, if they were to imagine the psychological makeup of a mathematician, they would say, oh, that's somebody who is very black and white, who thinks in yes or no, very precise, down to the 10th decimal place terms. And so, I think what you're pointing to psychologically is very real and it's something I try to display in the book that the mathematical way of thinking, it can be like that, but it's not the only thing that it is. Uh, we valorize uncertainty too and try to study it and bring it within our orbit. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the misunderstanding is again, calculation sounds precise and it sounds like it's very rule-based and you can only lead to one outcome and it satisfies those who want to have a very clear answer and so that sounds very direct. Um, but what you're saying is it's more about coming knowing how to analyze the problem which which leads to all different possible kinds of analysis and knowing which one to apply and that is is way less you know i mean it's very difficult to do and it's very nuanced to do yeah and that's part of what makes mathematics an art and not just an algorithm that we mindlessly apply so you also take on I guess you take on the intelligent design movement. You also take on Pascal's wager. Basically, you take on the mathematical element to certain kinds of proofs. Are they proofs of the existence of God? Are there people? Well, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, right. So, t- so tell us. I mean, but people don't usually think uh, that those things are mathematical at all. So, tell us. Tell us how you approach those. Well, yeah, I certainly never intended to write a book with this much God in it. But, um, <laughs> you know, this has been obviously one of the central concerns of intellectuals of every stripe for most of human history, including now. So, when you really go back to think about what people were thinking about mathematically, of course, that's a major thing. I, stood, I should have predicted it. Um, 
and you know somebody like Pascal, who's a major uh, religious thinker in his own way, is also, of course, in my tribe, most famous as a mathematician, most famous as one of the guys who really founds and develops probability theory. So, what I write about this in the book, actually, one reason I'm happy that is developed into a big part of the book is because it gives me an opportunity to talk about the limitations of the mathematical approach, right? So, mathematical thinking, it's an absolutely essential tool, a part of our cognition, but it's only one part. There's a lot of different parts wound together. Um, they're all working. And I think the story of mathematical approaches to theology and the existence of God um, from Pascal on forward end up being a story about the limitations of that approach. And even Pascal himself in the end says that reason has no answer. Math does not have an answer. And he worked pretty hard and he was a very good mathematician. Um, he concluded, I think, correctly that math can't tell us. But it's kind of different from what the intelligent design people say. I think they want you to believe that the existence of God is mathematically enforced. I think that's hooey. Well, what's similar, what I detect is similar in your critiques of the intelligent design argument, and hopefully most of our listeners will know, we might have to lay it out a little bit, or the Pascal's wager argument, um, is that in each case, it seems that they're saying, well, you know, you're, they're trying to force you to the conclusion that you should believe, either because you know it's you know it's it's the best option, or because it's what the evidence suggests. But in each case, they're not giving the full range of possibilities. Right. So one thing I talk about in the book is the fact that the typical argument on mathematical or probabilistic grounds for the existence of God, which is that this kind of very rich, complicated, structured world we live in would be very unlikely to have arisen by pure chance in a godless world. That's my one-sentence summary of what intelligence design is all about. That argument is an even better argument for the idea that the world was created by multiple gods or more sort of in a more contemporary spin that we are all simulations living inside a computer built by somebody much more advanced than us. And I think it's kind of funny to imagine the communities in the United States where we are told that we have to teach the controversy and teach intelligent design on scientific grounds. I think it would be funny to imagine what would happen if we proposed that they also give a third of the time to the hypothesis that we are all simulations living inside the matrix. <laughs> Right. And th of course, that's not... So, in effect, these, these arguments end up just being... They, they're, they're subtly forcing you to one possible theological interpretation of really a situation where you could spin out so many different possibilities. Right, exactly. And it's exactly the same problem of not considering all the hypotheses, right, that we talked about um, with respect to Fisher. So, I mean, one thing, again, that for me was so educational and so exciting about writing the book was really seeing all these connections between these questions that are very different on their face. And that's sort of, that's when you know you're doing mathematics, right? When you sort of see the skeleton underneath the flesh. So, let's, let's go back to um, Condorcet, uh, this liberal political scientist, proto-political scientist in the, in the heat of the French Revolution, um, who is actually governing but is also, or trying to, right? Doesn't, doesn't succeed at it, um, but is also trying to do uh, proto-social science at the same time. <laughs> right. I mean, what, so, yeah. what a fascinating figure, right? So, I mean, he's, um, you know, temperamentally, he is very much like the stereotypical mathematician, right? He's very quiet. He's not a good speaker. He kind of stammers. Um, he kind of holds it all in and is shy and then sort of explodes when finally he sort of can't take people's mathematical illiteracy anymore, right? So, he was called by his contemporaries the rabid sheep. That was his uh, French revolutionary nickname. But at least uh, from a modern point of view, um, because he's kind of 
inventing, I would even go so far as to say he's inventing kind of the idea of political science and social science, the idea that one of the things that we do when we think about what is right and what is just in politics is ask numerical questions, which is so deeply wound into the way we think about politics now that it's almost hard to imagine someone inventing it. But it was quite, it was quite radical. But it also didn't work, right? I mean, <laughs> right. The, so, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that you, you try to rescue this approach, but for Condorcet, it ultimately led to mathematical paradoxes that he didn't know how to solve. So, he basically proved, he proved without intending to, if I understand right, that you can never actually know who won certain elections. Well, maybe that, that that's right, that's right, that his initial idea of how it was going to look, um, didn't work. But again, if you're a good mathematician, um, you accept that one of the things you're going to do is prove things. And another thing you're going to do is find that certain things you try to prove can't be true, proved that there's a wall. But I mean, I wouldn't say overall, you know, whose world do we live in? Condorcet's world or Robespierre's world? Obviously, Condorcet's world. So, he did win. No, he, no, he, he you know, the, the, the thinkers of the Enlightenment won. Um, but, but at the same time, there's a certain sort of optimism there that the numbers are going to tell a clear story. Uh, that I guess seems a little naive now. Yes, that's true. But you know, it's the same way. I think um, I'm sitting here, like talking to you from San Francisco, and like it's the same way that the sort of techno optimists and techno utopians now—they're obviously not going to be right about everything that they say, and some things are going to be seen as like naively too optimistic. But um, at least for me, I feel extremely sympathetic to sort of people with a grand vision. No, people, people who are trying, and so I, I guess. Right. And people who are who are tolerating uncertainty and complexity of the analysis, and ultimately you end the book with, um, well, you end. It's not quite the end, but it's almost the end. You've got the poet John Ashbery, and you've got this line: "For this is action, this um, not being sure." That's kind of an interesting note to end on. Yeah, and I love that line. Always have. Um, I think Ashbery is the kind of poet that math majors can love. If there's math majors out there listening who are looking to pick up a book of poetry. Oh, there are lots of them, of um, course, listen to this show. Yeah, go ahead. So, it's, um, so, exactly. I mean, I sort of set up I sort of set up a philosophical battle in the end of the book between Theodore Roosevelt and John Ashbery. Of course, I have my thumb on the scale and John Ashbery wins. But um, precisely this difference between um, the Rooseveltian point of view that all this mathematical stuff is okay, but um, really it's just book learning and um, the real stuff is the person who's just willing to charge ahead without thinking so carefully, without thinking about what they've considered. Against him, I put Ashbery who, as, as you say, I mean, this line I think carries a huge amount of charge to say that the not being sure, the saying let's consider, the saying what can we prove and what can't we prove, what have we thought about and what haven't we thought about. Um, that is a kind of action. It's the kind of action that mathematicians carry out. And I think at that point near the end of the book, I hope that I have given people reason to believe that that is a kind of action that has moved the world just as much as armies and planes. Oh, and I, you know, and I think it's a really a profound statement at the end because for those who favor always a decisive uh, form of action that doesn't always necessarily bother to take in all the facts, I mean... For, from their position, it's always like the people who want the facts are wishy-washy or they're delaying or they're stalling. And yet, you know, and so it's so you wonder if they'll ever quite understand it. But ultimately, I think there's a quiet heroism in actually thinking it through and painstakingly analyzing it. And that's what I like about the book best is just that you actually stand up for that kind of heroism. So, so thank you. Thank you.
Well, it, it's been really wonderful to have you on the show and uh, best of luck with the book. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. So, Chris, the other thing that struck me in this interview, besides that important p-value conversation, is, you know, how math changes how you think. And, you know, your whole discussion about black and white thinking versus comfort with uncertainty. And it reminded me a lot of the interview we did with Simon Singh and how mathematicians who are writers on The Simpsons um, often prefer to deal in animation because it is more predictable, right? Uh, as opposed to other TV shows where, you know, you've got actors who may or may not go off script. Huh. Well, that that pushes back a little bit against um, Ellenberg's argument that there's something about math that is all about new. I mean, it might be his approach to math that he's actually reflecting. But I mean, there there is there is at least some evidence that I gave him that the sort of the liberal math faculty um, of the world, it, it is a liberal faculty. And then I kind of made the connection between liberalism and this kind of thinking. Um, so there's a couple of assumptions there. Um, but he but he said that, you know, the, the cliche about mathematicians is that they do like it black and white. He's pushing back pretty hard against that. Yeah, well, not, there's nothing I like more than a good pushback, so. <laughs> <laughs> We've learned that. <laughs> so that's it for another episode, and I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, World Cup predictions, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. I want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from. And they have a great offer for Inquiring Minds listeners, a free audiobook. Yes, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes, the most legendary sauce has arrived. As McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's, the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your ten-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go. I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.